The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that absolutely loves Tuesday night football. He is the captain. Yeah, I think people in your country call it soccer. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Day Raider by the Beer Wizards over at Kelsen Brewing Company. Day Raider is a Belgian white ale and their take on a classic Belgian wheat beer. Brewed with oats, pilsner, malted wheat, and a blend of coriander, chamomile, and orange peel. And of course, this is a beautiful golden beer color. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And some thanks and praise is in order, my friends. First up, a big cheers to Jody and Winston-Salem. And a big shout out to Carolyn and Indianapolis, Indiana. Here's a big Texas shout out to our friend Charles down in Cyprus. And a big We Like Your Jib to Jessica in Little Rock, Arkansas. Next up, here's a double cheers to Erica and Canyon. I think they're at the Air Force Base in Washington State. And last, but certainly not least, a big, big thank you and nice jib to Layla and Parts Unknown. Everyone we just mentioned, they helped us out with this week's beer fund. And if you want to help out with next week's beer fund, go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the donate button. Yeah, the beer fund. And we have to make a beer run. B-W-E-W-R-U-N beer run. For everything True Crime Garage, check out truecrimegarage.com. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at True Crime Garage. And Colonel, that is enough of the Crispy Colonel business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Sunday, October 4th, 2009. A 911 call came into the Milford, New Hampshire Police Dispatch at 4.15 a.m. An almost inaudible caller whispered into the phone something that the dispatcher could not quite make out. The call 
then became an open call, with no one remaining on the line. The dispatcher gathered that a robbery or assault was in progress and sent two responding officers, Sergeant Kevin Furlong and Officer Eric Wales, responded immediately to the scene at 4 Trow Road in Mount Vernon. They arrived at the address, a freestanding home in a largely unsettled area with only a few other homes nearby. There was a light on inside, but no one responded at the door. Through a window, the officer could see the body of a child lying on the ground. She was moving slightly, Furlong forced his way through the front door, which was locked, and entered the home. The young girl was covered in stab wounds, but she was alive. Unable to scream for help, all she was able to whisper was, They killed my mommy. The officer carried the little girl outside and left her with Officer Wales so he could return to the house to see if anyone else was present. He followed the trail of blood where the little girl had dragged herself into the kitchen to the phone and it led to the master bedroom. Sure enough, in the master bedroom of the ranch-style home, he found the body of a woman. She was lying on the bed, naked from the waist down. The scene was gruesome. The woman had been hacked to death. No one else was in the home. While Officer Furlong cleared the house, Officer Wales stayed with the young girl and waited for EMTs. She was able to tell him that two people had come into the home. She heard one of them say, grab the jewelry. The victims were determined to be 42-year-old Kimberly Cates and her 11-year-old daughter, Jamie. Jamie was taken to Boston Children's Hospital. Her wounds were extensive, requiring multiple surgeries. She would remain in the hospital for several weeks. Officer Furlong would require surgery on his shoulder, injured as he broke down the door of the Kate's home to save Jamie. Jamie was able to tell investigators that she and her mom fell asleep in her mom's bed around 8.30 p.m. on Saturday night. Sometime later, her mom woke her and asked, Did you hear that? Her mom got out of bed and went to the bedroom door where a man attacked her with a sword. Kimberly ran back to the bed to try to protect Jamie, but she was stabbed by the man with the sword and Jamie was stabbed as well. A man picked Jamie up and threw her against a glass door where she lay still pretending to be dead while they killed her mother she opened one eye in time to see one of the attackers plunge a knife into her mom's throat she told the police that she remembered two men one was bald and one wore a blue hoodie this is true crime garage and this is a case of Kimberly and Jamie Cates, the Mount Vernon murder. It was a scene of brutal carnage in a quiet, affluent suburban town of just 2000, about 60 miles from Boston. There was only one other known murder in Mount Vernon, and this was way back in 1840. Kimberly worked as a nurse and was an avid runner and gardener, and her daughter attended the local elementary school. Neither of them weighed even 100 pounds. Investigators discovered that a third person lived at the home. This is Kimberly's husband and Jamie's father, David. Now, statistically... The killer was most likely David. This the detectives knew. They wondered whether David, who was MIA, could have murdered his wife and left his little girl for dead. Perhaps this was another case of a would-be family annihilator 
like the Chris Watts case that we covered in episodes 269 and 270. But investigators tracked down David Cates. He was on a business trip in Maryland. In fact, he traveled for work as a contract engineer for the government and was gone most weeks. This was normal, routine stuff. He rushed to Boston to be by the side of his daughter, who was in bad shape in the hospital trying to recover from this horrific attack. He obviously had nothing to do with what happened inside that home. Well, and good for him because we have a eyewitness that's saying there's at least two people. Investigators were able to determine how the intruder entered the Kate's home. The screen on one of the basement windows was removed and the window was broken. A chest was in the basement under the window. This is how the intruder got out, they surmised. But they also noted that on the home's porch, the window AC unit had been removed as if someone had entered through this window. So two points of entry into this home. Police also discovered that the electricity to the house had been shut off at the circuit breaker. There was blood on the breaker switches. Fresh tire tracks were noted on a dirt area off of Tro Road. It had just rained, so the tire tracks were fresh, and neighbors confirmed that no one had parked there on that Saturday. Whoever invaded the Kate's home early Sunday morning likely parked off of the road near some tractor equipment and walked to the house to carry out their evil deed. On Sunday, this is in the afternoon at about 5.15 to 5.20 p.m., as crime scene techs were still working the horrific scene, Jamie was in the hospital and Kimberly was in the morgue awaiting an autopsy. Amherst police officer Nathan Barry pursued a vehicle that sped off when it observed his cruiser. It had attracted his attention because it was sitting in an industrial park where some burglaries recently occurred. When he pulled the vehicle over, he took the names of two teens in the car. This was Christopher Gribble and Stephen Spader. He questioned the two and then let them go. That same evening, police got a phone call. The caller was Carol Fenton, who was a mother of teenager Kyle Fenton. Carol said her son had some interesting things to say. A trooper went to the Fenton's home to interview him in person. Kyle Fenton said that earlier that day, two friends stopped by his house while he was hanging out with his buddy Jamie Hollins. The two told him and Hollins that they had broken into a house the night before in Mount Vernon and killed two people and stolen some stuff. Fenton told police that his friends even showed him and Hollins two knives that they said they used on the victims. They also said they used a machete. After the two bragging teens left, Fenton and Hollins saw a story on the news about a murder in Mount Vernon. Fenton was bothered by this information and told his mother immediately. Fenton's mother then contacted the Amherst police chief. Yeah, because I'm assuming at first when your buddy starts telling you, hey, we broke into the house, you're thinking, yeah, right. And then your buddy goes, oh, yeah, but, but we also killed people. And then you're going, yeah, that's that sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. You're probably just making this up. And then they leave, and then you see this news report, and now you're going, well, maybe maybe they weren't lying maybe they weren't just making up a story to freak me out or pull a prank on me like maybe this really happened right you start going okay either these guys did what they said they did or they have some kind of knowledge of something horrible that happened the next town over so the two that bragged about the break-in and attack were 17 year old steven spader and 19 year old christopher gribble the same two who had been pulled over by Officer Barry on the day after the murder. Two others were named by Fenton. This is Billy Marks and Quinn Glover. Police started looking for the vehicle registered to Christopher Gribble that they had pulled over earlier that day. They tracked the address to Gribble's home. Now, Gribble wasn't there, so troopers proceeded to Stephen Spader's house where he lived with his parents. 
Trooper John Encarnacio arrived at the home of Stephen Spader in Brookline on October 5th. Chris Gribble and Stephen Spader were just emerging from the house. Another teen boy named Autumn Savoy was with them. Police brought the whole crew in. Gribble was dressed entirely in camo gear when they picked him up. They took four pocket knives off of his person. Meanwhile, this is now Monday, October 5th. So Quinn Glover and Billy Marks, who were named by Kyle Fenton as co-conspirators in this murder, well, they're at school. Apparently, Glover was seen crying at school that day. A school resource officer from the high school in Amherst called police that Monday afternoon. The resource officer told police that he had been speaking with a student who had been cutting himself and seemed scared and upset. This student reported to him that Quinn Glover and Billy Marks and two others had threatened him. Cops met with this student. His name was Eldon Spikes. And he said that he, Spikes, had taken a bunch of drugs the day before and then hung out with Gribble, Spader, Marks, and Glover, who were reveling in the murder they had just committed. They openly addressed the murder. In fact, Spikes reported, Gribble said, quote, it was awesome when he slit the girl's throat. Spader said he wanted to do it again. They all went to the Pheasant Lane Mall to pawn some stuff that the teens had taken from the Kate's house. So let me get this right. This guy gets all high out of his mind, doped up on some drugs, starts hanging out with his buddies or acquaintances or whatever, and they start acting like laughing hyenas talking about this murder. Mm-hmm. And so he's probably getting a little freaked out. And so now they go to this mall, but the next day he's cutting himself. Yeah, he's at school freaking out. He's crying. He's cutting himself. He's, I mean, obviously visibly upset to anyone in his area that, that can witness this boy, this student mm-hmm. at school. He's a mess. And then when the resource officer starts speaking with him, I'm guessing this is like a, a counselor type position where the boy says, you know, I'm hanging out with these guys and this is what I like about, about this kid here. I mean, that's very forthcoming to say, look, I was, I did a bunch of drugs and then these, these friends of mine or people that I know start telling me all this crazy stuff. Right. They're, they're, they're saying they killed somebody and they enjoyed it and they would do it again. Right. And depending on what drugs he, he would do. Some could make you more paranoid. Well, it's also not like an illusion or anything like that. I mean, you you have to question that when you're talking to a a young person or anybody that said, hey, I took a whole bunch of drugs and Mm -hmm. then this happened. But there's details inside of this story that would cause anyone to believe, regardless if you believe or don't believe, you're reporting this to somebody. And the details are, hey, they all went to a, a mall with the purpose of pawning things that they stole from the house where they say that they murdered some people. Right, which would be direct evidence that these kids were in that house. Correct. So the items that were, I don't have a, a full list of what was pawned or what they were attempting to pawn because it sounds like they were not able to sell everything that they took with them. But some of the items included things like rings, bracelets and so on, which we already have the survivor. Her statement was that she heard someone say, get the jewelry. So this also goes along with our investigation. They also showed spikes, a machete that was in the trunk of one of the vehicles that they had. Just to back up a second, a lot of pawn shops or jewelry shops will be told about a crime. If they believe that something was taken of value to be on the lookout, mm-hmm. you can take it in, but once you take it in, please contact us so we can then take a look at the item. I was in a pawn shop not too long ago, and an officer came in looking for some items in particular, which I piqued my interest, I thought was Did quite- you 
empty your pockets and go, here it is, officer. No, they weren't questioning me. They were looking for these items in the You never the know. Shop. You never know. All right, Captain. So not only do these guys show Spikes this machete, and they show it to him it's in the trunk of one of the vehicles, they also tell him that the machete was very recently covered in blood, but they soaked it in ammonia and bleach. Then when this whole group, they're back at Spike's house on Sunday night, his girlfriend called and said that she had heard some rumors and she asked if Billy Marks was involved in a crime. Spike's told her yes. And this group of guys were all boasting about this murder. Then Glover's girlfriend called Spader and yelled at him for killing someone. Spader then threatened Spikes with a knife and accused him of being a snitch. Gribble also got out two knives, and the two advanced on Spikes in a, you know, in a threatening manner. He ran around the car, and Glover intervened to protect him. Marks then took him home. Spikes was, of course, shaken up by this and ratted to the resource officer the next day at school. This will bring us back to the police interview. Police interviewed both Billy Marks and Quinn Glover separately after school. Quinn said he had been asleep on the night of October 3rd and 4th, but then admitted that he was with Marks, Spader, and Gribble driving around Mont Vernon. But then he lawyered up and refused to say anything else to the police. Cops did some digging into this kid, Quinn, and found that he was a Mormon. He was a singer and a guitar player who performed at church functions, and he worked as a handyman at the church. So they instantly arrested him and gave him a life sentence for playing those good Mormon songs. Billy Marks gave police a little more information than Quinn. He admitted that he was at the Tro Road house with Gribble, Spader, and Glover. Okay, so now we have something alarming something that the police were looking for directly. We got this kid and he's talking. Well, we have a bunch of kids and they're talking to a lot of people, but at least now one is talking to the cops. Yeah. Billy Marks says, hey, I was with this Gribble kid, Spader and Glover. We were all at this Tro Road house and we were armed with knives. He said that on the way there, Stephen Spader said, quote, we are about to do the most evil thing this town has ever seen, end quote. Marks, at five foot three inches tall, was the smallest of the quartet. When they broke into the home, they broke into the basement of the house. And because he's the smallest, they're going to have him squeeze through this tiny window. He's now inside of the house in the basement, but he cannot get upstairs. The others broke into the house through the porch and one of them let him in. Someone cut the power while checking out an empty bedroom in the dark house. He heard a woman's voice saying, Jamie, is that you? And you don't have to do this. Spader called to him told him to come into the master bedroom, but he says he could not see anything until Glover turned the circuit breaker in the hallway back on. Then he says that he saw a woman and a young girl, both of whom already looked to be dead. He left the room, then took some stuff, and they all changed out of their clothes and they went home. Now, I want to tell everybody here right now that what you're getting from this kid, what he is telling to police, Billy Marks, he's admitting to being at the home where a murder took place. He's admitting to being involved, but you're also getting kind of a vague story, right? I had to squeeze into the basement. I heard some things upstairs, but I was not in the room when anything went down. When I get into the room, these people appear to be dead to me. Yeah, I mean, this kid's a real ass fruit, but he is talking to cops. And then it makes you wonder, as the investigator, is he telling you the truth? Is, it, is he just trying to get this off of his chest, or is he telling us part truths and omitting himself from the actual crime? 
Right. And we have investigators here that know that this kid is being conveniently vague about some of the details of what he knows. And so they're going to press him some more. And after being pressured by these investigators, Marks admitted that, in fact, the four of them had entered the master bedroom together before the attack went down. He says it was dark and they were using an iPod that they found inside the home as a light. This, he says, is when the woman in the bed said, Jamie, is that you? So the first story is he hears this while he's in another part of the house. Second story, I'm now in the room with these other three yahoos and we entered at the same time. And yes, I saw the woman when she was alive. I heard the woman say, Jamie, is that you? Yeah. If you could imagine you have one or two individuals right by the door and the other two right behind them, kind of like what's happening. So I don't think at any point was this, um, was any of these individuals separated from the group. And this is the middle of the night. So our victims here, unfortunately they're sleeping in the same room in the same bed, mother and daughter and husband and father is out of town. So this is again, probably pretty routine stuff for them. One is probably the reason why, the mom didn't mind her daughter that's 11 years old sleeping in the bed with her. Well, and that's why she's going to say, Jamie, is that you? She's mm-hmm. She wakes up. She doesn't know what's going on. She hears a noise or perhaps hears a noise and sees someone in the doorway. And of course, she's going to assume it's her daughter returning to the bedroom or leaving the bedroom. But we know, sadly, that it is not. This is when we have... Billy Marks says, as soon as he heard the woman say, Jamie, is that you, that Steven Spader attacked the woman with the machete that Spader brought with him to the crime scene. He says that Gribble then attacked the girl and threw her up against the glass door. Marks also told police that the day after the murder, which at the time they believed was two murders, And we know this because they bragged about having killed two people to several of their friends. Right. They didn't know that the little girl was alive, that she survived. He says that the day after the murder, the group they met up and Spader and Gribble joked about what they had done the night before. At Glover's house on the evening of the 4th, Spader said, we broke up a family. Isn't this great? Marks later admitted that he helped scout the Tro Road as a location for a break-in. On the Thursday before the crime, he and Spader drove out to Tro Road and selected the house next door to the Cates house. So this would have been 6 Tro Road, which was a large and expensive-looking house. This was their intended target. But on the night of the crime... They changed to the Cates house because it had no security system. They selected it, if you're going to go by that, at random. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it Absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, 
Thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. Thanks for listening and cheers to you, Colonel. Oh, well, thank you, Mr. Captain. All right. Billy Marks. He's talking a little bit to the police. He's we could telling, call him Billy Farts. There we go. He's telling them some of the things that they want to hear because they've been to the crime scene. They know the facts of the things that they've seen at the crime scene. He's starting to fill in some of the blanks. Again, a little conveniently vague, but now starting to open up with a little more details. One very interesting detail that he told investigators was he said that about a week before the Kate's murder, he, along with Spader and Gribble, while they're sitting around discussing, conducting some home break-ins in the middle of the night. 
And it was during these discussions, again, a week before, that they all agreed that if they encountered someone or anyone inside the home during one of the break-ins, they would kill everyone in the house. Police pulled the records for this gang of clowns. Billy Marks, together with Stephen Spader, had been arrested just a month before. This was for the possession of marijuana. The two were arrested together again back in June of 2009. Mm -hmm. This is after chasing a group of teens in another car and then ramming the vehicle. Okay, I get the marijuana charge, and I also get the teenagers horse around. Right. But vehicles, car chases, ramming other cars, that's some dangerous, reckless stuff. Yeah, but they could have been an accident. You're horsing around, and next thing you know, oh, my car hit your car. It could have been, but it sounds to me with what they were charged with and and convicted of in that incident. Right, and now what we do know about these individuals. That it seems to me that they probably threatened to ram their car and then followed through with that threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Steven Spader had a pretty lengthy record for a 17-year-old. This included some domestic incidents, stealing a car stereo, criminal trespass, disorderly conduct, and resisting detention. And supposedly, he was a really good kid. Wasn't he adopted? Yes, he was a good kid, and then I don't know what happened. Like It was like a light switch. Like It f- flipped the script, and he... He turned into this different person. Yeah, that's what his adopted family always said was he was real good and pretty quiet. And then all of a sudden it was just like a light switch went off. And instead of going in the right direction, he started going in the wrong direction. And I think by acting up, he was getting attention, but just not obviously positive attention. Yeah. And also, he had a charge, Stephen Spader had a charge for interfering with the custody of a minor. This related to Spader's 17-year-old girlfriend, whose father had obtained a restraining order against Spader back in February of 2009. Three months after obtaining the restraining order, this girl, Chelsea Cummings is her name, and Stephen Spader ran away together. How romantic. The father, Peter Cummings, pressed charges and Spader pled guilty to criminal trespass charges and the more serious charges were dropped. Peter told the BostonChannel.com that Stephen Spader was a nightmare who would not go away. Spader continued to see Chelsea, who eventually got pregnant. The two posted on Facebook about their impending wedding planned for December 2009. 40 guests had already been invited, but after the murder, Chelsea posted, just so the world is aware, this will never happen. Oh, good for her. The baby was born in January 2010 while Steven Spader was in jail for murder. Very similar to West Memphis 3. Chelsea has cut ties with Steven Spader, according to Spader's mother. Now, we could not find records for Quinn Glover or Chris Gribble. Looks like neither were arrested for anything significant before this break-in and murder. All right, so we've been talking about these four kids that they're questioning, but wasn't there five? Yeah, they actually picked up five, okay? So they picked up another kid named Autumn Savoy, and this is simply because at the time when they went to pick up Gribble and Spader, this kid is with them. This Autumn Savoy, they're going to interview him just as they would the other four. Savoy told the cops that no, Stephen Spader and Chris Gribble could not have murdered anyone on Saturday night because they went to his house. They showed up around 2 a.m. that night. They smoked some pot, and they all went to sleep. Mm -hmm. But he didn't stick to this story for very long because under pressure from the police, who, keep in mind, already had different information from Kyle Fenton and Eldon Spikes that Gribble and Spader bragged about the murder. They pushed this kid a little more, and Savoy admitted the following to investigators. He said that very late on the night of Saturday, October 3rd, Gribble and Spader left Savoy's home, saying they were going to murder someone. He thought they were joking. 
Savoy texted Spader asking him if he was doing a job. Okay, so keep in mind, they're vocal about this after the fact. They're vocal about this before they go out. Yeah, they're picking out a house a week before. They were vocal that they were going to break into someone's home. They tell this other kid, we're going out to murder someone. Savoy, after these kids leave his house, he texts Spader asking him if he was, quote, doing a job, Mm. which he says means a burglary or robbery at that time. Right. Spader responds to this text at 1.30 a.m. that says, busy will hit you when I can. Gribble and Spader arrived at Savoy's house shortly after 5.30 in the morning. They had called beforehand and woke Savoy up. They told him they selected a house in a remote area with no security to burglarize, and then they killed two people while robbing the house. Right. While detailing the events of their evening, Spader and Gribble showed Savoy the machete. He could see blood on the sheath, and he saw blood on a fillet knife the two showed him. The two were wearing different clothes at this time. Remember, they left his house, then they come back. Now they're wearing different clothing. They had the clothes that they were wearing during the attack and the weapons used, as well as gloves, but all of these items were in a black trash bag. Gribble and Spader asked Savoy if they could burn the items at his house. Savoy says, no, you cannot. It was decided by the group that they would throw all of the items in the Nashua River. They all drove to the river, and Savoy was the actual one who took the bag and tossed it in. He says this was around 7 a.m. Then they went to the convenience store nearby to get a snack. Savoy agreed to show the police where he had thrown the bag in the river, And, of course, they get out there, and the bag is still there. It's caught up against a tree just a little ways downriver. Nearby were floating two jewelry boxes and some sneakers and a wallet containing the name David Cates. In the trash bag were discovered clothes with spaders and gribbles names on the tags that their mothers or someone had probably sewn into the tags. Right, so just between the four kids, they got a lot of information, getting people to turn on each other. Now this fifth kid is giving them a lot more information, great eyewitness, great person that you can take to trial. But not only on top of that, what he's telling you, you know is true because you're finding evidence to back that up. Yeah, and he's involving himself in the crime, but not putting himself at the crime scene. He's saying, yes, they, they were at my house beforehand, at my house afterward, and I helped them dispose of evidence. Yeah, but that's great. That's great if you're law enforcement yes. because then you're going, hey, listen uh, listen up, Jack Wagon. If you don't tell us all this stuff and testify in court, we'll put you away for something. Well, we still have the two ringleaders, so to speak, to talk about. We haven't got to their interviews yet. So around 1 p.m. on the 5th, Chris Gribble was Mirandized and informed that he was not under arrest. He agreed to the interview, and he agreed that it would be recorded. He initially denied any involvement in the break-in and the murder. He gave Trooper Encarnacio a song-and-dance story about how they just went to Walmart, drove around, bought some jewelry at a yard sale, and then decided to pawn it at the mall. So he's not only coming up with some kind of alibi as to they were doing something different, but he's explaining away other evidence. Right. Officer Encarnacio told Gribble they needed him to stay while they obtained a search warrant for his DNA. While they're waiting to obtain said warrant, Gribble starts asking questions. And he wants to know whether the crimes they were investigating were eligible for the death penalty. He was told by the trooper that he did not believe so. And then Gribble agreed to talk. He said he now wanted to tell the story of what happened. 
but would only talk to Encarnacio. Officer Encarnacio recorded this statement. He told the police that the crimes were a conspiracy. He and his friend Stephen Spader were both psychopaths. The two had robbed a house near Spader's home just a week before. Once they spent the money they got from a pawn shop for the items stolen in that robbery, they decided they wanted to do it again. So Spader and Billy Marks scouted out a house on Tro Road in Mount Vernon because it was in a remote location, less likely to be seen. In his interview, remember Billy Marks admitted that he had been on this outing, scouting out which house to hit. Spader and Gribble agreed that if anyone was home during the break-in, they would kill them, quote, for fun. All four of them, Gribble, Marks, Spader, and Glover, were in on the plan. It would become clear that this was a planned event, thought out in advance. Preparations were made and precautions were taken and the plan included murder. As stated in the affidavit, they all knew that the plan was to break into a house and kill anyone if there were residents home. The plan was that Autumn Savoy would be their alibi. Gribble went on to detail what exactly had happened on the night Kimberly Cates was killed. All right, well, let's get into what he told investigators. Chris Gribble told the investigators that he and Spader met the other co-conspirators, Marks and Glover, at Walmart after midnight on October 4th. Right. Spader had forbidden any of them from drinking or doing drugs. He said that he wanted everyone to be totally lucid and sharp for what they were about to do. They all got into Chris Gribble's car after changing into different clothing and donning gloves. Gribble drove them all to Tro Road, dropped them at the house that they had selected, and then parked his car in a turnout down a hill near a tractor. They all left their cell phones in the vehicle. Mm -hmm. At some point, it was decided to change the target house. The teens intended to break into the larger home near the Cates home, but changed their minds and selected the home where Kimberly and Jamie were sleeping because it did not have a security system. They broke into the basement window. They lowered Billy Marks, the little guy, in, but he couldn't figure out how to get upstairs into the main part of the house. This apparently is because the door to the basement was locked. So what they had to do was they had to pull him back out of the basement window and they decided to take the air conditioner unit that was located in a window on the porch out of the window and go through that window. Spader went in first and let the others inside the home. Spader had with him a machete and Gribble carried a knife. Did the other two know that they had these weapons before they even got to the house? Not only did they know that these other two had the weapons, mm -hmm. but remember at least one of them has had the discussion and agreed that they're going to kill anybody inside the home, plus the two themselves have knives in their hands. Because it's not that uncommon. I know these guys are a little bit older, but it's not that uncommon for 14, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds to to dress up in all black or camo gear and go around the neighborhood, maybe egg in a house or toilet papering Little somebody. Teepee. Yeah, or just or just being out after curfew goofing around. Mm -hmm. But when you go, hey, we, we're going to break into a house, that's, that's another level. And then, but I could see some of these kids going, okay, yeah, we're going to break into the house, no big deal. But even when your buddies are going, well, but if there's somebody there, we're going to kill them. And not really taking that that serious. Like, well, you know, that, that'd be like going around and we're like, hey, we're going to TP this house. But hey, if the owner comes out, we'll kill him. You wouldn't believe your friend would actually kill the guy that came out. You'd believe your friend's just going to run away. Maybe not. 
and and I agree 100% with everything that you're saying. The thing that's really terrifying here is that we're only getting short little cleaned up versions of this story from the actual perpetrators. Right. And you know what they do. They're willing to admit to certain things and tell you most of the story, but they don't want to look like the monster themselves. Right. And what we do have is we have at least two stories of people that are saying they were in the vehicle when Spader said the words, tonight we're going to do the most evil thing this town has ever seen or something to that level. Right. What's left out of that, that's what they're saying he says in the vehicle. What's left out of that is it's clear, it should be clear to any of these idiots that have had these discussions of, yes, we're breaking into a home, and yes, we're going to kill whoever we find inside the home or whoever tries to stop us, that while we're on our way there, if I wasn't believing it before, and now I hear this guy say, tonight we're going to do one of the most evil things that this town has ever seen, yeah, if that, I, that I, statement to me means that this guy, he's probably legit about what he says. His intentions seem real. And what's even more scary is that it sounds like this group is expecting to find people in the home. Right. But you know my, what I mean? It's not like, it's not like if we find someone in the home, we're picking a home that we think there is someone there and we've already agreed we're doing this thing. Yeah. Cause, but my dumb ass, if I'm in that vehicle and he yells, we're going to do the most evil thing this town has ever seen. I'd be thinking we're going to take a massive shit and a brown paper bag and light that son of a bitch on fire and run for our lives. But that's, but I also would be interested, like you were saying, they talked about the break in way before this Mm -hmm. and how much did that um, conversation entail if we found somebody would kill somebody. And at some point, those are people that you would want to separate yourself from separate yourself from. And I think that it would take an awfully big person to do this because, you know, we've all been to high school and, um, we understand peer pressure and things like that and wanting to be accepted by our friends, but not only separate yourself from these individuals, but, probably warn somebody be it a parent teacher or law enforcement that hey this is what these kids are saying they're going to do someone needs to intervene and and speak with them and figure out is this is this something that's real right i mean you can't uh, let's continue on because that's that's a whole different road there that we could easily go down but as you pointed out as we were discussing captain these four guys are now entering this home and all of them are armed. They all have bladed weapons with them. Spader has the machete. Once they're inside, they turn off the circuit breaker that was located in the hallway of the home. This to obviously cut the power, no electricity. They searched some empty bedrooms using the light from an iPod that they found on a docking station inside the home. Then Spader opened the door to the master bedroom and the woman in the room said, Jamie, is that you? She tried to turn on a lamp, but they had already cut the power. Then as Gribble put it, Spader started hacking the woman. Gribble said in his interview, quote, Steve was just hacking away. He just lost it. I was controlled, but I didn't really feel much of anything. I thought I would, but I didn't. He said, I was actually kind of scared of him. He just kept hacking at the bed. I was backing off because Steve was losing it. The child in the bed jumped up and Gribble stabbed her in the face and chest. Per the affidavit, quote, Gribble tried to stab the girl in the heart to kill her. He then threw her against the glass door. Gribble assumed the girl was dead. The mother was still gurgling. Gribble stabbed the mother in the neck and chest to try to kill her. Spader then went over to the girl and kicked her with his boot and gave her a whack with a machete. They checked the woman to make sure she was dead, but no one checked the girl. The murderous teens seemed to relish the killing of of a woman and a child. They didn't give it a second thought. 
after they were done with the killing, they searched the home for items to steal. They went to the car. They changed out of their clothes and they put them in a trash bag in the trunk. On the car ride home, as if they're celebrating some fantastic achievement, they're all smoking cigars. Is that a euphemism? No, they're, they're actually smoking cigars. Now, they dropped marks off at his car that was located at the Walmart. So, again, it's you're getting these stories, little bits, and there are some little nuggets of truth in there, but... It's just insane what these what these four kids just did. Right. Smoking cigars, celebrating the murder of they believe they've killed two people. Oh and a woman and a child at this point, mind you. Right. Smoking cigars and then let's drop this this guy off at his car at Walmart. And then the three of them, they continue on. Now we have Spader, Gribble, and Glover still in the vehicle. They go to Savoy's house. Remember, he's the fifth kid that they picked up who is not at the crime scene, right? but has been questioned by police. They say when they get back to Savoy's house, they told him the whole story of what they did. They show him the items that they stole. And they said, look, you're expected to be our alibi we were here the whole time. We weren't out doing any of this stuff that we just told you about. Spader told Savoy that he carved the word die in a piece of wood on the porch. I'm, I'm guessing this would be a post or pillar type thing on the porch. On his porch. On the porch of the house that they hit. Then mm. Savoy threw the garbage bag containing the bloody clothes and gloves and some of the items stolen from the house into the river, as said earlier. After disposing of this evidence and eating the snack, they went back to Zafoy's house and checked the Nashua Telegraph online to read about their handiwork. They're checking the news to see if anybody's yeah, like they're getting discovered off this. on this. Yeah. Right. It was then that they learned that the girl was still alive. Remember, they thought they killed everybody in the house. This caused some obvious tension within the group. Yeah, because they're now aware that she's alive. What did she see? Did she know any of them? Well, and two of them, they start berating Gribble. So Spader and then Savoy, the guy who wasn't even there, they're harassing Gribble for failing to kill the girl. Well, so that shows you how big of a pile of shit he he is even right. though he didn't go oh man you should have killed that girl well and mind you it it's it's clear and obvious now that this guy even though he wasn't there he was fully aware of what he was told their intentions were and yeah. said i will cover for you and whether he believed it or not he said he would cover th- for them. And when then they come back from doing what they told him they would do, right. he continues to cover for them. And now, as you're pointing out, big, giant piece of shit, Savoy and Spader, they are harassing Gribble for failing to kill the kid. And and Yeah, I'd like to take the all five of these kids and put them in a brown paper bag and light them on fire and put them on somebody's porch well and and forgive me everyone out there i'm simply repeating the words of an obvious monster but we have a a story to tell and it's sad and it's true but what spader said to gribble was quote at least i killed my bitch right Gribble then told investigators that the plan all along had in fact been to kill whomever they found in the house from the arrest affidavit quote. Yeah. Wait, but hold on a second. You're so fucking tough that you show up to a house that they're not uh, suspecting that you're going to come break into their house and you're going to show up and you brought a knife fight to a fist fight and, or a machete or whatever. And then you you wake them up. You or start not attacking. even a fight. These people are unaware that any of this is going to right to right go down. And then you start attacking them in their sleep. Oh, you're so fucking tough, you idiot! You know, Jesus Christ. 
All right. From the arrest affidavit, quote, Steve and I are pretty messed up people. I'll be perfectly honest. I've wanted to kill someone for a long time. It's a, it's like an urge. And it was kind of a time that I thought I could get it out. He said, continuing on quote, but I thought at least I would feel bad about it. I'm almost sorry to say I don't, I'm not sure why, but I'll be honest with you. I can't say I was sorry about it. I just felt nothing. It was kind of cool because it was different, but I'm not really sure if I have a conscience anymore. Gribble stated his only regret was that he did not kill the child. He said if he had realized that she was alive, he would have killed her. Quote, I'm kind of surprised that she's alive. I kind of wish she died for her sake just because she's going to have to live with all of that now. If I'm going to kill someone, he says, I'm going to actually do it so they don't have to sit and live with a bunch of trauma. I've been through so much trauma, I don't want someone to go through that. So if I can just end it for them, I would. If I had realized she was still alive, I would have ended it for her because there was no way she could recognize us as far as we knew. So we didn't really care about that part. Again, just pointing out the depravity and the the sickness of these individuals, they're not even killing for the sake of getting away with the other crimes. Right. His own words are, we never, there was no reason for us to believe that this kid would be able to identify any of us. It's killing the people in the house for the sake of killing them. Right. Not, Not to, well, if they wake up, we will have to. We'll have to kill him to protect our identities. The criminal motivation at one point in the discussions that were had well in advance before these crimes were committed was to break in, steal, and rob from a family. That motivation changed at some point into murder. And they all agreed to do it, and that's what they did. So what else did Gribble say in his interview? Well, this is weird. He expressed surprise to the investigators when the investigators informed him that Jamie, the 11-year-old, was a black belt. And he says, really, the girl honestly was a black belt? This is just surprising to me because she didn't really put up any struggle. Right. You attacked her in her her sleep, you idiot. Right. He says, I mean, she was brave to actually jump up and run. I mean, I think most kids would probably just kind of blubber for their mom, but she did try to run for the door. If I hadn't been there, she would have gotten away probably. It's kind of cool. 11 years old and a black belt. I'm impressed. Gribble then asked about the girl's condition. Officer Encarnacio said that he did not know her condition. Thank you, officer. Uh, One, of course, her condition was in flux, right? They're trying to save this, this young girl's life. Right. But thank you to the officer for not giving this dude any satisfaction, be it if the girl's condition were bad, good or improving or otherwise, you don't deserve to know. You don't get to know anything, bub. Right. Well, on top of that, this would be a very tough day in the office Mm. because there'd be so much like you're, you're in a room alone with this scum and he's, he has the nerve to say things like, oh, I'm surprised she was a black belt. She yeah. never really put up much of a fight. At some point, I'd have to leave and say, look, I can't do this anymore because I would love to put my hands around his neck for just a little bit and just talk shit to him. Well, Gribble goes on to tell the officer, okay, I'm just curious to see how she's doing. I kind of feel like now that I hope that she gets better. So, I mean, how, how thoughtful of, of Chris Gribble to all of a sudden yeah. care about people. Now, per the Nashua Telegraph, quote, Gribble also said that Spader had started his own brotherhood, the Disciples of Destruction, and the Mount Vernon murder was something of a test for Gribble and the other potential members, this being Quinn Glover and William Marks. He said that he had gone along with lying to the police because he was worried that Spader might have killed him. Spader, he said, was, quote, the real deal. Right, and just to 
dive a little further into Chris Gribble and his personality, we want to play you a clip from the trial. And this is Chris Gribble's father talking about his son. And did your wife go to meet with Chris at the jail? She, we were able to, he was able to meet with her twice or on Christmas and New Year's. Um, he had expressed a very clear desire repeated multiple times through your office that he had no desire to meet with her. And I had sent him letters saying, you know, it's Christmas, would you like to meet with me? Could your mom and brother come up and meet? And, okay. We saw him on Christmas Eve and we saw him uh, the following week on New Year's Eve. That, those were the only times that she saw him. You said you saw Chris up until July of last, uh, and when we talk about you, your wife going to see him, that was the previous Just Christmas. the previous year, Not this yes. most recent Christmas, but Christmas before that. That's correct. And you said you had met with him up until July of this past summer. Yes. And then he said he didn't want to meet with you anymore? Yes. Did he ever give you any sort of um, reasonable explanation as to why he didn't want to meet with you anymore? A reasonable explanation? Yes. I don't think it was reasonable, no. What was the explanation that he gave you? Um, I had offended him. He uh, had asked me what I thought of him. Uh, and I said, I think that you're so involved in your own problems and, how, and how, how difficult they are that you fail to see that there are a lot of other people out there who are hurting. And your belief is that because you're, you're going through much worse things than they are by being in jail, that they should ignore what they're going through and, and come and see you. I said, uh, as I recall, I told him that he suffered from center of the universe syndrome. And at that point, he said, well, then maybe I don't want to see you anymore. Hung up the phone and walked away from the uh, visiting area. And so today in court, is this the first time you've seen him since last July? Other than pictures, yes. Other than pictures on TV? No, we, don't, we haven't watched the news since okay. he was arrested, but occasionally the uh, front page of the paper has a picture. Sometimes that's hard to avoid. Yes. For all of our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. They are free, and we also have a bonus show called Off the Record check that out yes captain i got an email from somebody earlier this week that said hey i'm a new listener can you guys cover this case my email back was we already did you gotta check out the old episodes there's hundreds of them on the stitcher app please join us back here in the garage tomorrow until then be good be kind and don't litter you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water-soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 